Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a weekly true crime podcast where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. All right, everyone, you heard the news. I will now be in your ears on a weekly basis. So buckle up because unfortunately, these stories keep rolling in. And today I have the mother of all catfish stories. And the perpetrator was a suburban Dallas mom. But wait, I wanted to put a little plug in here for my Patreon because last week, I dropped another bonus episode out of Fort Hood involving a double catfish story that literally pinned one brother in arms against another brother in arms only months after surviving a grueling Iraq deployment together. So if you want to listen to that story and the other 30 plus bonus episodes that I've already put out, be sure to check out patreon.com slash military murder or subscribe to my Apple premium subscription today. All right, today's episode should serve as a cautionary tale to remind you as I heard said during a Dateline episode, that some people are better left in your past. When things don't work out in your marriage, stop looking up your exes on Facebook because you might just find that time turned your ex into manipulative pathological liars. Join me today as I tell you the tragic and senseless case of James Jamie Faith. Now, let's dig in. Jennifer Lynn Erlab and Darren Lopez were high school sweethearts. They met when they were 15 years old at a co-ed Catholic school in the 80s, and they were both in the band. But this wasn't just any cheesy band. This was a legit band that traveled the world for weeks at a time. They went to England, France, Switzerland, Germany, and Austria. Now, if you can imagine American Pie and all the teens swooning over each other at band camp, well, imagine that times a hundred. Jennifer and Darren sealed their young relationship with a kiss at the top of the Eiffel Tower. Yup, it was first love like no other. Jennifer and Darren attended the prom together and they even stayed together for some of college, both living in the dorms. But as Jennifer continued her schooling, Darren bumped heads with his colonel dad. Yeah, Darren was a military brat born in Germany and Darren decided that he could make it on his own. Darren then dropped out of college, worked at Jack in the Box and enlisted in the Army Reserve. But the Jack in the Box gig wasn't really doing much for Darren. So Darren decided to go active duty. When Darren was set to leave to Korea, the distance for Jennifer just seemed too much for the young love. So eventually, Jennifer and Darren broke up and went their separate ways. Jennifer moved on and she got married and had a daughter. But when that relationship didn't work out, Jennifer divorced her first husband and then married her second husband. But it appears that the second marriage didn't last long either. As Jennifer moved on, so did Darren. He met a woman while he was working at Jack in the Box and he married her 10 months later. I'm assuming that he married her as he was preparing to leave for the army. While Darren got married, took his stepdaughters on as his own, and had his own children with his wife, Rebecca, totaling five daughters, Darren never stopped thinking about Jennifer. 
Eventually, in 1999, Darren would become a Special Forces member. And in that position, he endured various deployments, where he often put Jennifer down on his military survival card in the event of his capture. But Darren knew that they had both moved on. So he never tried reaching out to Jennifer, but he never stopped thinking about her. During one of Darren's deployments, his convoy was hit. And of the 23 soldiers who were on the convoy, only four survived. Darren was one of the four survivors. This attack occurred in 2005. Due to the attack, Darren suffered a traumatic brain injury and both of his eardrums were busted. He also suffered from PTSD and sadly, a few years later, his army career came to an end. Darren bought some property in Tennessee and that's where he settled with his family after leaving the military. So while Darren was out doing his life, married, father, deployment after deployment, let's track down Jennifer in 2005. In 2005, Jennifer was living in Arizona working as a speech pathologist as a single mom when one of her friends decided to set Jennifer up on a blind date. 33-year-old Jennifer got really excited. And when she showed up to her blind date, she met James Faith, a 34-year-old bachelor who had a lot going for him. This guy was never married, had a bachelor's in computer science, and he was working in software engineering. During the blind date, there was a lot of chemistry between the couple, and they soon began dating. The fact that Jennifer had an eight-year-old daughter didn't bother Jamie at all, and he accepted her with open arms. The couple moved in together, and Jennifer's daughter treated Jamie like a father, and he accepted the role, attending dance recitals, and everything else that comes with being a girl dad. Even though Jamie thought he was going to be a bachelor for life, that all changed when he met Jennifer. And in 2012, the couple eloped to Vegas. Years later, Jamie would legally adopt Jennifer's daughter as his own. Five years after the couple was married and 12 years since they had been together, Jamie received a promotion at work that required a giant move. But I'm sure it was a bump in pay and responsibilities. So with that, in 2017, the family excitedly moved to Dallas, Texas. Jamie was now serving as a director of technology at American Airlines, and Jennifer was the regional director of therapy at her job. The couple settled into their community on Waverly Drive in Dallas, and the couple became the envy of the block. They just seemed so in love. Wives would look at their husbands and say, why can't you be more like Jamie? And husbands would look at their wives and say, why can't you be more like Jennifer? In March of 2020, during the COVID pandemic, everything changed. Jamie and Jennifer began teleworking, and this required more time at home together. And it was during this period where everybody was on lockdown that one of them would rekindle an old flame that would destroy the Faith family. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, 
I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy, and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T, for 15% off. Enjoy, and when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. Friday, October 9th, 2020, was supposed to be a normal day. It was the day after Jamie and Jennifer celebrated 15 years together. And that morning, they were set to walk their dog, Maggie, as they did every morning. It was a warm morning in Texas, 7.30 a.m.-ish. As Jennifer exited the house with the dog, Jamie followed right behind her. When all of a sudden, shots rang out. Four, five, six, seven. They just kept coming. Jennifer screamed for help as she was attacked and duct taped And then in the scuffle, the perpetrator left and took nothing. When Dallas PD arrived, they found 49-year-old Jamie Faith dead on the ground. And Jennifer, she hadn't been shot, but she had been rustled around a little bit. Jennifer was razzled in shock that anyone could commit such a crime in broad daylight. She described that morning to the police. She said she exited the house, her husband followed right behind her, when all of a sudden she heard fast footsteps coming right behind her. And that's when she heard the gunfire. The perpetrator was wearing a blue COVID cloth mask. She believed he ran out of bullets or he would have shot her as well. He pulled at her jewelry, but as she screamed for help, she thought she just scared him off. As police were in the area, neighbors ran to their security cameras to see if the camera captured the perpetrator. One neighbor caught a black truck speeding off. It was hard to make out the license plate, But what they could make out was a large T-letter decal on the back window. Officers canvassed the area for more videos of the perpetrator, and they got something from the Faith family's own ring security camera. But it was not the one in the front. It was the one facing the back of the house. On it, they saw a man entering the vacant house immediately next to the Faith house the night prior. But not like really the night prior, just hours earlier, like in the wee hours of the morning. Since Jennifer was uninjured, detectives brought her down to the station for more questioning. They wanted to learn more about Jamie. Did he have any enemies, anyone who might have bad blood against him? But Jennifer admitted that Jamie was loved by everyone. And together, they had a great relationship. She said, truth be told, Jamie has no enemies. Of course, police wanted to rule out Jennifer as a suspect because, you know, if the husband is dead, hashtag the wife did it. So they asked Jennifer for permission to look at her phone and to download the content. Jennifer was so receptive. She was like, take the information, whatever you need to find my husband's killer, please take it. Let's catch this perpetrator. The neighborhood where the fates lived was devastated that someone could come into their community and commit such a heinous crime. They soon learned that Jamie had been shot seven times. He had been shot in the head, in the chest and in the groin. They were nervous, wondering if any of them were next. 
Who was the perpetrator? Where did he go? Was he watching them right then and there? But in addition to that, the neighborhood was devastated, not only by the loss of a community member, but their hearts were hurting for Jennifer and her daughter. That's when a Good Samaritan neighbor launched a GoFundMe account for the Faith family. The community really rallied together during this dark time, and within just a few days, they raised a little over $60,000. Everyone was amazed, but no one was shocked because the Faith family was an integral part of the community. Jennifer and her daughter felt the love. While this is happening, the homicide investigators were trying to find the owner of the black truck, and they're trying to figure out if the man that entered the vacant house the night prior was responsible for Jamie's murder. If so, why had he laid in wait all night long? Investigators decided to download all that information that they got from Jennifer's phone. And when they did, that's when a light bulb went off. As they were scrolling through Jennifer's text messages, they found a few messages from earlier that year where Jennifer admitted to a friend over text that she was, quote, having a full-blown emotional affair, end quote. Jennifer said that the affair was with some guy she dated back in the day in high school and college. She even said that they had intended on getting married back then. Long story short, though, this new slash old guy, Darren, told Jennifer he had a five-year plan to get her to move to Tennessee. Months later, in August, the friend, she was kind of nosy. She was like, hey, Jennifer, so can you give me an update on you and this guy? Like, are you still having an emotional affair? What's going on? At that point, Jennifer said, no, no, I, uh, we called it off because it was just too much. But investigators were looking at these messages and they were like, Darren, who the hell is Darren? And we get that she said the relationship was over. But, you know, let's look into this a little bit more. Well, when they look in Jennifer's phone, there is no information from a guy named Darren. There's nothing, which was suspicious. But investigation revealed that Darren from high school was now a 40-something-year-old Army retiree named Darren Lopez. They learned that Darren was a Special Forces troop, multiple deployments to Iraq under his belt, Purple Heart, Bronze Star. Anyway, when authorities look Darren up, he's living in Tennessee. And when they look up the DMV records, Oh, what do they find? He owns a black truck identical to the one seen on surveillance video. Authorities were able to get a search warrant for Darren's phone. And wouldn't you know it, it revealed a lot. Darren and Jennifer had been talking and texting on the phone like a couple of teenagers, thousands and thousands and thousands of contacts for several months. So now the detectives wanted to see if this black truck had that T decal on it. So they conduct aerial surveillance on Darren's home in Cumberland Furnace, Tennessee. And boom, just as expected, the T decal matches exactly what the surveillance video showed. Now that the state of Texas had proof that they were barking up the right tree, they had to get the feds involved because Texas couldn't do anything in Tennessee. And if Darren was the perpetrator and he crossed state lines, well, you get the picture. So Dallas PD brought in the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearm, ATF, and they began a joint state and federal investigation into the murder of James Faith. So all of this is happening October, November 2020 timeframe. No arrests had been made. And while cops believe that Darren was the perpetrator, they weren't quite sure if he was just a deranged, jealous ex or if Darren was acting on Jennifer's orders. And then on December 2nd, 2020, Jennifer agreed to do a TV interview with WFAA in Dallas. I'm going to play the clip of this interview. It's about eight minutes. 
And it starts with Jennifer describing Jamie. Here's the clip. Amazingly caring, very kind. Um, He would give you the shirt off his back. He went out of his way to help people. Um, He was this amazing leader. But on top of that, oh my gosh, such a great husband, great father. Um, He actually adopted my daughter. Um, She was mine from a previous relationship. And you would just never know that they weren't father and daughter. Most people would never expect it. Um, So, yeah, just this wonderful, warm, loving person. Uh, you all had been together for a while, right? And, and, uh, 15 years. How many again? 15. 15 years. And um, you had a great life in Dallas, didn't you? I mean, you Very. Uh, you, you, when did you move here when you bought this home a couple of years ago? Yeah, so um, he worked for American Airlines. He was an IT director. And um, when U.S. Airways and American merged, we moved from Phoenix to Dallas three years ago. Um celebrated our anniversary and bought this home all on the same day. And, um, and then three years and one day later he was killed. But yeah, we've really, we built a community here. We love the Oak Cliff area. I love the community here. Um, we've gotten very involved with our neighbors and built, built a life here. October 9th. It was a normal day. We walked the dog every day at the same morning. We got up, we did our normal good morning thing. And, you know, we, we, we like that time together because our daughter's been staying with us since COVID hit. And so it was, it's our quiet time before she gets up and we just talk in the mornings. And so, and then we got the dog ready and walked out the door like we always do. We're actually standing where everything took place. I, I heard running behind me and I turned around to see what was going on. And the next thing, I don't want to give away too many details to justify, to, to jeopardize the case. But um, next thing I knew he was shooting at Jamie and, um, and then turned around and came after me and tackled me. And we know that property was taken from Jamie and he tried to take property from me as well. And I think the neighbors, all of the neighbors at that point heard all of the gunshots and, and came out. One neighbor had even witnessed part of what had happened and uh, came out. And I think it spooked him. And that's what that's what made him leave. Yeah, so you, you walked out your door. Uh, tell me how, how that played out. Little yeah, I just walked out the door like normal, right, right out our front door. I got about as far as those hedges behind you and... He, Jamie always walked behind me when I, cause I had the dog, the dog usually would go faster. And so he'd stay behind and close the door. And we walked out the door and we made it right to the house right behind you. And I heard running behind me and I turned around and then just shooting just started. He, Jamie just, Jamie wasn't doing anything. He actually saw the guy and started walking backwards like this with his hands out to his side. And the guy just kept shooting and shooting. And then he turned around and I yelled no because I knew he was coming after me. And a neighbor said that they saw him attempt to shoot me, but the gun was empty. I was running up this driveway and uh, he tackled me and started beating on me and taped my hands together. Um, and then I think he got spooked by neighbors and got in his truck and left. That truck you said is a critical piece. Truck is absolutely critical. Somebody has got to know whose truck this is because it was a it's a black nissan titan extended cab it had a um a texas ranger sticker in the back window 
And so it's it was very distinctive from that point. Um, I don't want to give away too many other details, but if somebody knows somebody who has that truck, there's there's got to be somebody who knows somebody who has that truck. And even if the sticker's not there anymore, somebody who knows someone who used to have a sticker in their back window, I mean, if somebody could just come forward with that information alone, it would be so helpful. What did this Everything. Everything. My partner, my best friend. I just, I'm not supposed to be widowed at 48. You know, my my daughter's father, the only father she's ever known, was, was, they were two peas in a pod. He used to call her his partner in crime. I just hope that at some point, maybe this person can recognize the gravity of what they've done and feel some sort of guilt enough to come forward because this is, like I said, I feel like I'm going through the motions every day. I just don't, it's just hard. I just, our, our life together it was every day together and we loved it that way. So. You came here, it was kind of a huge step in your life. It was huge. Yeah. Yeah. We had been, we had spent our entire relationship in Phoenix, Arizona together and we were kind of like, we thought of it as an adventure, you know, it was a good adventure to come here and move someplace, live someplace new. And we were really enjoying it, building a new community together. And he loved his job and the American Airlines community has just been fantastic. So that's been helpful. But, um, but, you know, just, just embracing all of that was really, we were enjoying all of it. No, this time of year is awful. I'm I'm forcing myself to get into the routine of Christmas and all of that, but it's forcing myself to do it. We just really need some answers. Um, just there, there just isn't, there, there isn't a whole lot that of information that we're getting. And um, just for closure, just if somebody knows anybody, who, you know, either matches the description, it was a either a dark Hispanic or, or a light-skinned black male, um, short stature, about 5'8", heavy set, um, very dark eyes, um, you know, and then the truck, the Nissan Titan, if any, with the Texas Ranger sticker in the back. If anybody knows anything, please contact the detective. And that's Detective Walton. I know you mentioned the detective now, but uh, as far as communication of, of uh, the people at DPD have been pretty forthcoming. Uh... They were early on. Um, I was getting pretty good communication from the detectives early on. I mean, really in helping them try to figure out, you know, was this random? What might the motive have been? Is there anybody that maybe would have caused it to be, you know, where Jamie was targeted with this crime? And we just really couldn't come up with anything. I mean, there are some things that um, definitely were being pursued, but um, lately, I think, honestly, I think it's just gone cold and there's no information he can give me. And so I'm really not getting any communication. I, it would be nice to have something just to know that something's still being looked at and being done, but I'm not and I know they're very busy. The crime rate in Dallas is horrible right now, and I'm sure they're overextended and spread very thin. But it doesn't—it doesn't help me in terms of finding the answers that I really need. How's your daughter doing? The same as me. It's just a roller coaster for her. She's just as up and down as I am.
Thanksgiving was particularly hard having an empty seat next to us at the table that wasn't supposed to be there this year. Yeah, that's the other thing that makes this difficult is like most of my long-term friends are all there. I don't have any family. My, Jamie's parents and his sister are my family now. I mean, and that they've always just been my family. So other than that, it's just been myself and my daughter. And then when he entered our lives, it's, you know, we got the whole family. And so, you know, and there and nobody else is local. So you all met in Phoenix? We did. He was a long-time U.S. Airways employee? Or? He was, yeah. Yeah, uh, transferred over to American with a merger. 7.30, though. That's a, that's a 7.30 in the morning, which is crazy. Daylight out, you know, still, and people were going to work and driving by. and. This is not a once-a-week walk, right? You take No, every single day. Every single day. And never had any issues at all. Nothing. That was kind of a bonding time. You said. I mean, like that. I mean, you, were, you all spent a lot of time together. But, but you, you would. The mornings were special for us. Very special, just because it was our time together, just to talk and kind of talk about his day. And I have a past leadership position also, so we'd bounce ideas off of each other in terms of leadership roles and, you know, what things he was going through with his employees and, and then. Uh, um, yeah, and then walking the dog was really cool. I mean, that was just a nice thing for us. And that started, we were able to walk the dog together after COVID hit because he was home. So. How long have you had your dog? Uh, sh almost two years. Yeah, I know. And, and it's just the crime rate this year, as you mentioned uh, in the interview, it might be the worst since like 2004. Right. So uh, that just... It doesn't help. You know, no. It doesn't, it doesn't help no. the investigation. And it doesn't no. Help. And I'm sure they're just as frustrated as I am, you know, that they can't do more with, you know, the resources that they have. But again, it doesn't help. <laughs> well, I really hope that this story gets it back in the eyes. Thank uh, you. The headlines and, and uh, gets people talking about it again, which is so important. I appreciate that. Thank you for doing this. The day after this interview, ATF started to surveil Darren's house in Tennessee. And this time, when they see the truck, it has a new decal. It still has the T-letter decal sticker from before, but now there was another one. But four days later, the T-decal was gone. At this point, investigators are still not done yet. Armed with a warrant for Darren's phone and bank records, authorities learned that even though Jennifer told her friend in August that her emotional affair with Darren had ended. In actuality, it had not, and conversations were still ongoing. In fact, days before Jamie's murder, Darren and Jennifer were in contact over 1,500 times. But on the day leading up to the murder and the day of the actual murder, well, comms between them were sparse. There was actually a 28-hour dark spot in their communication, which seemed really odd to police. And throughout most of that time period, Darren's phone was off, totally giving Israel Keys vibes right now. But even though Darren's phone was turned off for most of the day, there was something he did the day before Jamie was murdered. What he did was he opened his Google Maps on his phone to look at the route from his house in Tennessee all the way directly to Jennifer's house in Dallas, Texas. That was 650 miles. 10 hours, and he, no kidding, 
put Jennifer's exact address into his Google Maps. Even though the phone was off, police were able to track its route and together with bank records, they were able to track Darren through Tennessee and through Arkansas, where Darren stopped at a gas station. At the gas station, he entered the store wearing the same blue COVID mask that he was wearing in the surveillance video in the vacant house next to Jennifer's. And it's the same blue mask that Jennifer herself said the perpetrator was wearing. Darren even stopped at an ATM where he withdrew money and then he didn't use his debit card while he was in the state of Texas. In the wee hours of October 9th, just hours before Jamie was murdered, Darren's phone was tracked to the same block as the Faith family house. Ten hours after Jamie's death, Darren texted Jennifer. That day, they exchanged 50 messages. That night, when Darren arrived home, he couldn't help himself. He googled articles about Jamie Faith's murder. He would continue to look for updates on the case. After Jamie was dead, Darren and Jennifer started to pick back up with their messages. On average, they would be in contact about 500 times a day. When authorities looked into Darren's financial situation, it didn't look too good. It looked like Darren had been struggling. He was going through a divorce, he was behind on bills, and the bank had initiated foreclosure on the house. Jennifer, before Jamie's death, appeared to have sent Darren money and gifts for him and his daughters. At that point in the investigation, all that authorities could see were how many times Darren and Jennifer had communicated, but they couldn't see what they had been communicating about. And without knowing the content of the messages or phone conversations, authorities still didn't know if Darren was just a jealous lover or if he had been Jennifer's hired hit. Like I said, Jennifer and Jamie seemed like the perfect couple. They were the envy of the block. He was a doting father. They were dual income. So it wasn't like money was an issue. So armed with all this information, in January, authorities planned to arrest Darren while simultaneously questioning Jennifer to keep them from communicating with each other. Darren was arrested on January 11th. He was charged by the feds with one count of transporting a firearm in interstate or foreign commerce with intent to commit a felony offense. Now that felony offense would be murder, but he had not been charged with murder yet. For the transporting a firearm charge, Darren was looking at up to 10 years. At the same time, authorities executed a search warrant of Darren's property and vehicles. Among his belongings, they found the blue mask, credit cards in Jennifer Fate's name, a large flat screen TV in the box that had been gifted to him by Jennifer, and they found the murder weapon. It was a Smith & Weston and ballistics confirmed it was in fact the murder weapon. In addition to this, Jamie Fate's blood was found on the actual gun. Let me repeat that. The gunman had gotten close enough for blood to get on his gun and the blood was still there three months later. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. 
It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. While Darren was being arrested and his house was being raided, Jennifer Faith was sitting in an interrogation room and there for the first time, authorities asked her about Darren. They were like, all right, Jennifer, who's Darren Lopez? Jennifer explained that her and Darren were old buds and that he had been going through a difficult divorce and that she was just his confidant. They asked her if she had given Darren any money and she admitted that she had helped him out financially, but she said that it was strictly because she felt bad for him and his daughters. Jennifer reiterated that her and her husband had the perfect marriage. In fact, before his death, they were happily married. At the end, authorities asked if they could download her phone contact again. And again, Jennifer handed it over with open arms. But this time, when authorities looked at the phone, well, it had been wiped. Before Jennifer went to talk to the police that day, she had done a factory reset. Womp, womp. Weeks after Darren's arrest, after being extradited from Tennessee to Texas, Darren was charged by the state of Texas with one count of murder. The death penalty was still on the table. When detectives tried to talk to Darren, he refused to say anything. And his cell phone? Well, it was void of any messages between him and Jennifer. This made it difficult for authorities to really connect Jennifer to her husband's murder. But investigators had that nagging feeling that she was involved. So now they were back at square one. But once they had Darren's phone, they were able to retrieve previously deleted messages. And these turned out to contain a treasure trove of information. For starters, before Jamie's death, Darren told his daughter that Jennifer and her dog were going to be living with them in Tennessee. In late November, after Jamie's death, Darren and Jennifer were texting about deleting old messages. They were talking about resetting phones. The day after Jennifer gave that TV interview, she sent a link of the interview to Darren's phone and then urged him to remove this sticker from his truck. Darren said it was somewhat of a sentimental sticker because his daughter gave it to him. But eventually, Jennifer was like, please take the sticker off. Over text messages, they, quote, practiced what they had told each other about their current relationships because they wanted to be sure they would be on the same page if questioned by investigators. And then in early December came the conversations about Jamie's life insurance money. You see, Jamie had a $629,000 life insurance policy. In addition to that, he had his 401k, where he had close to $400,000. So of course, Jennifer was trying to cash those out. But life insurance had put a stop on the payment because they wanted to know more about the investigation. Jennifer then shared with Darren that she had to do a records request for Jamie's murder investigation file so that she could send it to the insurance company because she wanted to make sure they knew she wasn't a suspect. I mean, they were legit talking about this over text messages. And then in early January of 2021, Jennifer sent another text saying, quote, I started thinking, if life insurance doesn't pay out before I start to run out of money, I can always tell people that I am going to move in with you to help the girls in exchange for room and board, end quote. 
Leading up to Darren's arrest, there were a lot of lovey-dovey texts. I love you. I love you. No, I love you more type stuff. But there were also a lot of planning text messages. What are you going to say about this? What are you going to say about that? After investigators had these text messages, they knew they were one step closer to nailing Jennifer. But it wasn't enough. But they feared that with her out of jail, she would continue to destroy evidence. So on February 24th, Jennifer was arrested and charged with obstruction of justice. This charge came for her involvement in communicating with Darren, telling him to remove the sticker, wipe his phone, wipe her own phone, that type of stuff. Once Jennifer was in jail, authorities obtained Jennifer's Google records, her search history, her emails, that type of stuff. And what they discovered in that Google account was even crazier than the craziest thing you can even imagine in this moment. First, let's chat about when Jennifer and Darren first reconnected. Darren found Jennifer on LinkedIn and he sent her a message. She was immediately smitten and they began chatting, catching up on life. Darren shared that he was retired from the army, but that while he served, he had suffered a TBI. He spoke about his pending divorce and the process, and they continued to chat over emails. But Jennifer also gave him her number since she was more readily available over text messages. Now, mind you, just real quick, within 24 hours of reconnecting, Darren was already telling this woman that he loved her. While they reconnected, Jennifer, well, she shared her woes. She told Darren that her husband, Jamie, was both physically and sexually abusing her, and she didn't know what to do. Throughout the conversations, they both consoled each other for their failed and failing marriages. It only took a few weeks before this was a full-blown emotional affair. They shared how much they loved each other, how much they wished they could be together. They fantasized about having sex with each other. They watched pornography together. They talked about all the kinky stuff that they liked. But Jennifer always seemed to bring it back to the abuse she was experiencing at the hands of her husband. Side note, and just to put this up front, Jamie Faith, the victim, had actually never put his hands on Jennifer. She was just an attention whore and wanted sympathy for a fake crime that never happened. But Darren believed Jennifer. I mean, why would he not? And then one day, Darren received an email from Jamie Faith, allegedly. The email was dated April 9th and said, quote, I got your email from Jen's phone. I would normally call you to discuss this, but I don't want this to be an angry conversation. So it's easier for me to send you an email and hope we can settle this in a civil manner. So man to man, I am telling you to stay away from my family. It's obvious that you and Jen can't keep your communications to a friendship. So I am asking that you stop communicating with Jen, end quote. In May, Darren received more messages from Jamie, allegedly claiming he was going to gang rape his wife. He also allegedly told Darren that there was nothing he could do about what was happening to Jennifer. And in one email, there were even pictures of Jennifer appearing battered. Side note, the pictures of a battered Jennifer were in fact real, but the pictures had been taken eight years earlier after a car accident. Jamie would allegedly send other pictures of injuries which would later prove to be stock images found online. And then in mid-May, Darren began to receive messages from someone alleging to be Jennifer's co-worker, a man named Rob. Rob was a confidant of Jennifer's who got Darren's email from her to share more information about the assaults. Darren was now having conversations with three people. 
Jennifer relaying the abuse, Jamie, the husband, mockingly relaying the abuse and telling Darren there was nothing he could do about it. And the co-worker, Rob, who was like, oh, my goodness, this abuse is so bad. It should be noted that these two additional accounts purporting to be Jamie and the co-worker, Rob, were in fact created by Jennifer on April 9th and May 13th, respectively. And they were subsequently deleted on September 3rd. And the messages continued into August. In the summer, the messages went from vulgar to extremely vulgar, depicting brutal rape and even an almost drowning, where Jennifer was forced to perform oral sex underwater and where she awoke to both her husband and another assailant, giving her CPR to resuscitate her. Darren, all along, believed what was going on. He would respond to messages and he would later describe feeling helpless. He would say that he wanted to call the police, but listen, I'm going to let you hear Darren talk about this on his own in a little bit. So let's continue with the investigation. Now that Jennifer was behind bars, investigators looked into the GoFundMe account. They wanted to know how Jennifer had used that money. And when they looked into it, they were shocked. Their investigation revealed that on October 13th, just days after Jamie's murder, Jennifer took out $30,000 from the account. Over the next two days, she took out an additional $13,000. And a few weeks after that, she completely emptied the account. Jennifer then put that money into one account. And right before Thanksgiving, she gave Darren access to that account via a card. She also gave Darren a credit card that had no limit. These were the cards that investigators found at Darren's house when he was arrested. And it turns out that some of the GoFundMe money also went to buying gifts for Darren and his kids. She also bought him a flat screen TV. She flew Darren and his three kids to Arizona, all on Jennifer's GoFundMe money to help her and her daughter recover from her husband's death. After discovering that the GoFundMe funds were used by two perpetrators, GoFundMe refunded the money back to the donors who so kindly gave from their hearts. On September 28, 2021, close to a year after Jamie's murder, his wife, Jennifer Faith, was charged with murder for hire. The death penalty was now on the table. After Jennifer's secret catfish life was discovered, investigators presented Darren with this new information. They wanted to see if this betrayal might cause him to open up. But Darren stayed quiet, refusing to say a word, at least until the moment was right. Jennifer tried to save Faith with her old fling, who, by the way, she had never actually seen in person in close to 30 years. And the only time she saw him was the day he showed up to kill her husband, which, I don't know, that is in and of itself insane to me. Jennifer sent Darren a message in jail that said, quote, just a quick note to say I never lied to you and I never sent you emails from any account but mine as me. There is a ton more I wish I could say, but I can't right now. In the end, it was Jennifer that broke. Eventually, she sat down with investigators and told them all the dirty details. She was a pathological liar. She lied to Darren about the abuse and created these fake emails to orchestrate a scheme. And then she threw her high school boo thing under the bus because she ID'd him as the shooter. With all that out in the open, Jennifer entered into a plea deal with the prosecution. In exchange, Jennifer Faith pled guilty to a federal charge of commissioning a murder for hire. They got rid of the obstruction of justice charge and in exchange, the prosecutor would recommend life versus a death sentence. At the guilty plea hearing, the prosecutor did not hold back, stating, quote, 
Jennifer Faith's cold-blooded plot to murder her husband was made all the more heinous by the way she behaved after his death. Even as she wept for her late husband on TV, Miss Faith was corresponding with his murderer, plotting about how to cover up their crime. The U.S. Attorney's Office, ATF, Dallas PD, and our law enforcement partners remain committed to getting justice for Jamie. We are proud to hold Miss Faith accountable for her crimes and look forward to proving our case against her boyfriend, Mr. Lopez, in court. Truth will prevail in the end, end quote. On June 21st, Jennifer Faith was sentenced to life in federal prison. And again, at the sentencing hearing, the prosecution had words. Quote, Miss Faith put on quite a performance in the wake of her husband's murder. She poured out her sob story to reporters and law enforcement, then headed home to orchestrate her cover-up. But crocodile tears don't stop the feds. We were committed to getting justice for Jamie. And with the judge's imposition of a life sentence this afternoon, we're one step closer, end quote. I feel like this case reminds me a little bit of Letitia Stauk because, you know, these people, these perpetrators, they go on national TV to plead for help knowing full well what happened. It's a damn shame. But listen, I believe it's always helpful to have these videos to show just how ruthless people can be when they think they're getting away with something. Your tears now after being busted mean nothing because you deserve an Academy Award. So the thing about Jennifer Faith is that she is a straight up actress and Darren had not actually been her first pawn. You see, 48 Hours was following this case closely. And after Jennifer's verdict, 48 Hours caught up with Jennifer's second husband. And damn, if he didn't have almost an identical story to Darren. I mean, except for the murder plot. Jennifer's second husband is a man named Rick. And Rick told 48 Hours that when he was married to Jennifer, she would tell him horror stories about the abuse she endured at the hands of her first husband, the father of her daughter. Rick said that the descriptions of what that man did to Jennifer were so horrendous that he would get fueled with enough anger that he quite literally wanted to kill the man and that he would tell Jennifer, I want to kill that guy. But Jennifer would always say, no, 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 you can't do that to my daughter's father. Rick begged Jennifer to at least report the abuse but Jennifer always declined. Rick also admitted that Jennifer loved to play the victim card. She always had a sob story for everything. In the end, Rick said that Jennifer was the most evil person he had ever come in contact with. Once Jennifer's catfish scheme was revealed, Darren realized he had no one left to protect and he decided to give a full confession about Jamie's murder. But despite his confession, when it came time for trial, Darren pled not guilty. And I think that's because at trial, his defense counsel had an ace up his sleeve. Darren wasn't going to say he didn't do it. He was going to say that he was a disabled veteran with a TBI who suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, who was manipulated by a mass manipulator into committing a crime he thought was in defense of another. And on the stand, Darren discussed why he did what he did. This is a portion of Darren's testimony describing a bit about his special forces training, his injuries, and his retirement from the military. Here it is. 96 came to Fort Lewis, Washington, and uh, again with air defense, and then I applied for special forces in 1999. And then, so what type of training did you have to go through to be a special forces 
Let me, let me ask you this. Yes. How, how long is the training? Uh, for me, it took three years. Uh, I got my medical training, and you do language training, and then you do tactical training. So three years to become uh, a part of the Special Forces. Yes, sir. And you, did you, were you always a medic with the Special Forces, or did that start later? No, sir. Uh, that was my assigned uh, duty job for Special Forces. That's where I got trained in. Uh, and to be trained is, you know, we hear medics in the, uh, in the military a lot. Yes, sir. Uh, what's the difference between a regular medic and a special forces medic? Yeah, book definition is uh, I am trained to keep a critically injured casualty alive on my own for seven days. Um, in that, we are uh, trained almost to the level of a physician's assistant in an emergency room. Um, basically, a physician's assistant's uh, schooling takes about two years. Ours gets condensed down to one year. So. Um, like I said, it, it's highly advanced. Uh, along the course, I am also becoming a nationally registered paramedic. We do uh, training. We actually go to New York and do training. You go through the special training, you graduate, and then you are put into action as a special forces soldier, right? Yes, sir. Uh, so you go, to, you go to the special forces, and then you are uh, deployed out to do things in the world, aren't you? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, right away, I was. Where did uh, you go first? Uh, we kicked off. I was assigned to a Fifth Special Forces Group in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, in uh, 2000 and uh, end of 2002. Um, Fifth Special Forces is in charge of the Middle East. In 2003, we were prepping to uh, invade into Iraq. Uh, yes, sir. Well, we we actually deployed into uh, uh, Kuwait, and we, we staged. I was, you know, part of the initial invasion force into uh, Iraq. We invaded in April two thousand and three. Were Were you injured in Iraq? Yes, sir. Um, a major injury occurred on my third on my third deployment. And were you injured before that also? IEDs, improvised uh, explosive devices, the road bombs, uh, go off uh, right next to my Humvee uh, a couple of times during a trip to. And that uh, you know started my concussion injuries. And so, but then you, when was it that you received uh, your most serious injury? Um, that would have been uh, September 9th, 2005. I was uh, blown up by uh, two uh, truck-borne uh, improvised explosive devices. And uh, during this event, it uh, killed 19. Um, the only four of us that survived were the four members from my, from my Special Forces team. Um, we were all injured. Um, let's, talk about, let's talk about your, your, your injury. Yes, sir. Uh, uh, how bad was it? Uh, sir, I was blown up twice by two truck bombs within 30 seconds of each other. Um, now, what we see there is, is that the truck that had the... Uh, the, uh, the nitrate in it that blew up? Uh, it looks like the front end of one of them. Um, there was two. These were uh, both five-ton dump trucks, the, the larger, the real large dump trucks. In each truck was uh, five 55-gallon drums of the ammonium nitrate. And so uh, when you receive, uh, when you were near that explosion. Yes, sir. Um, you received you received a brain injury. Yes, sir. And you were treated for that, right? Yes, sir. And then also my eardrums were blown out. I have tinnitus in both ears. 
Did you stay in the military after that explosion or no? <laughs> sir, I, I stayed on deployment, sir. I uh, recovered for five days and was back on duty. As, uh, and is that when you received your Purple Heart form? Yes, sir. And so uh, you, re you received these injuries and eventually uh, you're treated for them uh, uh, back here in the United States, right? Uh, eventually, sir. I don't get diagnosed with that traumatic brain injury until the end of uh, 2009. So that was uh, basically after my fifth deployment is when I officially got diagnosed with the brain injuries uh, due to that explosion. So you, uh, you're diagnosed and that's the, is that at Fort Campbell? Yes, sir. Okay. So uh, you're diagnosed and eventually did it lead to you uh, being discharged on 100% disability because of your injuries? Yes, sir, eventually. Okay. And when that happened, where did you go? Did you, did you, did you come back to, uh, where did you come back to? Arizona? Where did you move back? No, no, sir. I, I stayed local. We fell in love with Tennessee. Um, we were living there since 2002. Um, no, I stayed local. Um, I had already, as I was already at that time, I was already living in the residence in uh, Cumberland Furnace, Tennessee. Um, I moved there in 2008, so uh, no, I retired out of the military and stayed okay. there. Uh, let's move forward to uh, 2018, uh, where uh, you and Rebecca had been married for a while, right? Uh, about, I believe 23 years, sir, yes. Okay. Uh, and your marriage breaks down? Yes, sir. And, uh, yes, sir. So you're living in Cumberland Furnace, Tennessee. Yes, sir. Um, and Rebecca is no longer living with you? Correct. Uh, and uh, so you live there. Do you live by yourself, or did somebody live with you? Uh, my three youngest girls at the time were well, when she uh, when we split up. The the three, three girls initially stayed with me. Okay. And so uh, at this time, uh, from 2018 to uh, 2020, uh, were were you were you being treated for uh, for traumatic brain injury? Uh, yes, sir, and, and PTSD. Okay. That's what the diagnosis the doctors gave you? Yes, sir. Okay. And so, uh, you're living by yourself. You are, uh, or your daughters. To begin with. To begin with. And so, uh, in 2020, uh, you're living there by yourself. Uh, COVID hits. And uh, you reached out to Jennifer Bay. Yes, sir. Okay. Why did you reach out to her? Um, that 2019, I became extremely depressed. That's when the, the girls actually ended up moving away from me back to be with Rebecca. So I was by myself. For that full year, I, I had no contact, with, even with my buddies. Um, I became extremely depressed. January 1st of 2020, I made my New Year's resolution to... Uh, uh, get back in, into life um, and that's when uh, I reconnected with my buddies and at that time frame started to look for Jennifer. As you heard at some point Darren's 23-year marriage went down the gutter. His wife moved out but his three youngest daughters stayed with him but they eventually left. So he continues in his testimony that in 2019 Darren experienced a very low point in life he turned into a hermit, didn't communicate with his buddies or really anyone. But then in January of 2020, he made a New Year's resolution 
that he was going to pick himself out of the slump and he was going to start living again. This is where his testimony picks up. Reach out to her. We've seen that where you, you contacted her on LinkedIn. Yes. Okay. And how did that make you feel when, uh, when she responded to you after, after initially not knowing if it was you or not? Uh, I, ecstatic. Uh, you know, um, I, it took me a, a couple months uh, of internet searching for her to, to, to find her. And uh, finally came across her Twitter and LinkedIn and was able to reach out. So you, you, you finally, re- uh, as we've seen in the emails, you, you, you reconnect with her. Yes. Right? Um, and it's part of your, uh, your New Year's resolution to, to reconnect with people. Um, and you started emailing with her uh, right away, right? Yes, sir. I, I wanted to, when I reached out to her, I wanted to uh, thank her and let her know what she did for me for all these years. For the, the 10 years that I was in combat, what she meant with me and how she helped me through it. Um, you know, prior to each deployment, I would have to fill out that SEER card. Uh, so you, you, you wanted to reach out to her. Was, was your intent to break up her family? No, sir. You clearly see that in the email that they showed yesterday. Matter of fact, uh, at what point did it start to get more than just hello, I'm here, I remember you? As we see, you know, it starts, you said at some point you start professing your love for her. Uh, uh, yes, sir. I mean, it, I was surprised yesterday to see how, how rapidly it was. If you had asked me, I would have said it took a couple of weeks, not just a few days. Um, but right away, she started telling me about her relationship with, with Jamie and how it was not emotional and no physical love there. And so that's when it started to grow. Okay. Um, you talked about a five-year plan with her. Can you tell the jury what that's about? Um, yes, sir. I mean, I, I, you know, after we were reconnecting and talking about it, found out that you know she was a little bit distant from her husband. You know, if possibly we wanted to get together, and five. You know, um, I was I was still I'm still going through a divorce. I wasn't divorced yet. Uh, you know, my daughters were in school. Uh, I was not able to, I was not going to move from, from where I was. My daughters were going to finish high school. All of them, my youngest at the time was in eighth grade. So it was going to be five years before she graduated high school. So before I would move anywhere to maybe be with her, it was going to be a five-year plan. And was that your plan or was it both your plans? I mean, you had to No, I came from me. Okay. I said that, you know, I will not be able to do this. You know, it's going to take five years. Okay. Now, you eventually, uh, at, over time, I mean, we, we've seen the emails over time, eventually you received information that she was being abused. Is that true? At some point? Yes, text messages. Mm-hmm. So the first time you heard of, uh, of abuse was through a text message? Yes. Okay. And uh, but prior to, uh, and now who was that purportedly from? Uh, it turned out to be, uh, it came from Jennifer Face phone, but it popped up, I believe the text message at first was, you know, um, I know about you too, I'm going to take it out on her. Mm-hmm. Meaning I, I, was, I was reading it as it was coming from Jamie. Okay. What did, what did you think? I mean, were you surprised by that? Did you... I was I was in, I was in shock. Now, wait, wait. 
And that was coming from Jennifer's phone? Yes, sir. At any time during this whole episode, at any time, did you ever get a, uh, a text message directly from another phone uh, that was Jamie Faith's phone? No, sir. It was always through her phone? Correct. So the first time you got this message uh, where he says, you know, I, I found out about you, uh, you, you look at it, did you respond to it? Yeah, I believe so. And, you know, I was like, you, what do you mean? Uh, uh, you know. Now, did, did, uh, did, uh, were you kind of confused as far as why, you know, like, is this, is, uh, uh, yeah. is, is, Jamie, is uh, Jennifer playing a joke on me or like, why is this coming from her phone? Correct. You know, when it, when it came in there, you know, I was, I, I, yeah, I was confused, uh, you know, exactly who was sending it. Okay. So you get this message, what do you do? Uh, like I said, I had a text back, you know, like, what do you mean? And I believe then is when he said, you know, this is Jamie. I, I found her phone and I see all the, you two have been texting. And, uh, you know, and he was uh, upset about it. Okay. Now, prior to that message, though, you had, you, you and, and Jennifer had talked about him, right? Did she relate to you that they were, you know, not as close as they used to be or they weren't intimate as they used to be, correct? Correct, yeah, she told me that they had not had a, a sexual intercourse in uh, four years. When she was telling you about the abuse, was it always through an email? No, maybe through text messages. Okay, through text messages. Text messages, yes. Um, was she also telling you on the phone? So in other words, all your conversations were not just text messages, they were also uh, speaking on the phone with a voice. Yes, sir, yes. No, uh, that's why, uh, you know, eventually the text started I, I was confused at first, and then, you know, after that first night, she was able to call and let me know that, hey, Jamie, starting to take my phone uh, uh, from me and, and sending you messages, I'm sorry. And so then, yes, uh, over the course of time after the abuse started, when she would be able to call, then I would hear her voice, and she would, again, relay what had happened and, you know, be, be crying about it and, and upset. How did you feel about that? I was in shock. I, you know, didn't know what to do. Uh, I was upset. And, uh, you know, I wanted her to, uh, uh, you know, get the authorities involved right away. Now, the fact that she was texting or he, he was texting you through her phone, uh, eventually did you and her work out a system where you would know it was really her texting you and not him? Yes, sir. That's what system was that? That's when we, we used my uh, special forces uh, team number, which is 575. So I told her when she, she writes to put down 575 right away, or if I just received a, a random uh, text message, I would ask team. Uh, and so if I got the response 575 back, I knew it was her. If I got any other response back, like maybe uh, like Green Bay Packers or Patriots or something or other, then I knew it was, it was Jamie. On the phone or through text, you immediately wanted to involve the authorities? Yes, sir. Why didn't you do that? Why, why, why didn't you do it? Why didn't you, why, what was the reason that you yourself just didn't pick up the phone and call the Dallas Police Department? Um, it got real bad one night and I, I threatened to do it because, uh, you know, at first Jennifer didn't want me to after the first, like the first two times. I was like, you know, we, we need to do something. And it was like, I believe, the, like the third time, it got real bad that night. 
I had texted, you know, I'm going to call the cops right now. I actually looked up the phone number for, for, for Dallas uh, PD. I texted that, that I got the phone number, and, and I'm calling now. And then all of a sudden, my phone rings, and it's her calling me and saying, no, 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 don't. He stopped. Um, so the first few times, that was, that was what would stop me. And she didn't want the cops involved right away. Why didn't she want the cops involved? She said that, um, you know, she started blaming it on, on, on herself and me by getting, by getting together. And she did not want to hurt Amber. Amber was uh, uh, living with them at the time. Um, you know, it was COVID it had hit. So the reason she didn't want to call the police was because she felt somehow responsible because she was with you and that maybe that, that yes, that, she didn't want to bomb, but. That, that, that she set it off, that she, you know, was uh, uh, doing something against their marriage. And so she was taking it like it was, was her fault. And then she did not want Amber ever to ever, ever find out what her, what her dad was doing to, to her mom. So uh, is this around the time that you uh, started sending emails to, to Jamie in which you were threatening him to call the police or tell him I've called the police? Yes, sir. Uh, but you never called the police, even when you said I've just called the police. Correct, because, you know, it was building up uh, through those the phone calls. Jennifer finally told me, Darren, if you call the cops, I'm going to deny everything. So don't get them involved. And I really don't want Amber to know anything about this. So she told you she wouldn't cooperate if the police got... As you heard in that clip, Darren's initial response to Jennifer's abuse was to get the authorities involved, especially if the abuse was as bad as she was saying it was. But Jennifer told him no, not to report this to authorities. In fact, she said, if you report it to the authorities and they show up at my house, I'm going to deny everything. And then things are going to be worse for me because Jamie is going to hurt me even more. So now I want you to hear from Darren while he testifies about his drive from Tennessee to Texas. There, he says, he's on his mission to kill the man that he perceived to be the enemy. So you're, you're driving down, you hit the Texas border, and then, as we saw, you end up uh, not close to where you were supposed to go. No, sir. I, Why is that? <laughs> One of my PTSD, TBI triggers is... I don't like a lot of people, and I, I, I don't like driving. I get lost easy. Um, I, can drive, I can find you anywhere in Iraq. I, get, I still get lost in Tennessee driving around. As I was getting close to Dallas, you know, I was just using the regular old uh, 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 map. So you get to Dallas. I'm getting to Dallas, <laughs> yes. You get to Dallas, and you end up south of the area where the, the, the address in, in, in Oak Cliff, right? Yes, I'm trying to look for the dang uh, Claritin, I think is the name. That, that main road that's, that's right there, I believe. I'm, I'm not, not trying to remember. It's, I know it starts with the C. I'm trying to look for Claritin. There's a whole bunch of construction. I just, uh, I, get, I literally get lost. 
and, and I keep going, and then I guess south of Dallas, you know, it, it uh, you know, all of a sudden it seems like the city kind of dies off. <laughs> it becomes, you know, the lights down, and then that's when I, 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 I knew, I look around, and I'm lost. So, do you end up pulling over at some point? I did, right then. Uh, yeah, I pull off to the, the side of the, uh, off to the highway, there's a, like a parking area. I pull into, I feel myself getting into my PTSD spiral. All these emotions. You, 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 you use that term, PTSD spiral. Uh, yes, sir. I mean, that's what doctors have told you happens to you when you get high stress and things like that. Uh, yes, sir, right? I've been okay. through, I've so, been. And this, and this is something that, you know, it's not like self-diagnosis. This is what doctors have told you. This, yeah, I, I went through PTSD programs through the military and through the VA. So you, uh, yeah, you, uh, you pull over, yes, and, you, and, you, and you, you, you try to gather yourself. Is that when you turn on the, your iPad? Well, n not, not yet. I mean, I'm pulling over. I stop. I feel all these emotions coming on. I, I knew I'm lost. What am I going to do? She's going to be attacked within hours. I sit there thinking the only way I'm going to be able to find her place is if I turn on my iPad. Or, I mean, it's my Galaxy Samsung, actually. You know, turn on my Google Maps. That's the only way I'm going to be able to get back on there. But I know as soon as I hit that button, I'm leaving a digital trail. But all the emotions of everybody that I've lost started thinking about, about Ethan. He was my team sergeant's son who was murdered in Kentucky that we were there with that we couldn't stop or do anything with. My granddaughter, Skyly, she died when I was in Iraq. She drowned. Thinking about it, I was talking to my daughter Summer about it and saying, Dad, why aren't you here to save Skyly? My best friend, Don, committed suicide. I couldn't stop it. I was thinking about these things. Stuff that I couldn't do, I couldn't stop. I had promised myself if I was ever in a position to help somebody that I cared for and loved, I would do it. So uh, the, all these emotions are going through your mind when yes. you're pulled over and you're reflecting back to this, uh, to the losses you've had even after the losses you've had in Iraq, right? Yes, on top of all my buddies I work with. All these emotions are coming over you at that time and you, do you, do you feel that you weren't going to lose another person that was that you loved. I couldn't, and she asked me, and before I left, one of the last messages, one of the last phone calls. You know, I think that's even on on the record that we had that Thursday. I told her she was not going to go through another bad weekend ever again. I promised her. So. I knew as soon as I hit that on button, most likely I was going to be caught. But it was, what did I live with? Was I going to go back to Tennessee, not doing anything? 
and realize that Jennifer is dead because she was drowned or she's in a coma? And what would happen to Amber? So, I, so what did you do next? I, I made this his. I mean, I, I, I couldn't live with it anymore. Not to have somebody else that I care for. So I powered on my tablet. And then that took you to the address. Took where you right, right to the address. Okay. Uh, but, and while you're driving there, you still feel there's an immediate danger that she's going to be hurt, right? Oh, I, I know it. I mean, starting that, you know, that morning, it, it, you know, he had made it clear to me leading up to this that October 9th was her day. So you get there, and then you went to a property that was next door to their house? Uh, yes. Jennifer had told me that their immediate house right there was abandoned. Nobody was there. Uh, you know, Jennifer told me that, you know, that, 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 you know, that was, you know, nobody was there. Did she tell you to stay there? Uh, yes. So, yeah, well, she told me that it would probably be a good place. And that's where you see um, the video of uh, me walking back there, um, looking at it. Now, uh, was it nighttime when you got there? Uh, I, be I believe on that video camera, it was like 2 in the morning. It was slowish. So it was nighttime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's totally dark. So you get there, you you uh, you're watching the house. Right? Yes, sir. Okay. Are you listening also? Oh yeah, I'm right there. I mean, uh, you saw on, on that video there was that the, uh, the the wall fence right there next to to their house. You know, that's where I set up right along that wall. I mean, I'm as close to their house as possible. I know the question might be, well, like, well, if you really felt she was in danger, why didn't you just bust into the house? Uh, we, we get trained like the ATF does. You know, the agents, they do their recon. Um, the ATF knew that my daughters were home. They didn't want to do anything to me with, with them home because, you know, my daughters could be hurt. Amber was home. If I did anything, busting into the house... I could not control the situation. Amber could be hurt. Jennifer could be hurt. You know, they had their dog Maggie that they loved. You know, it was a, a, a bad situation. And, and coming down, there was not going to be any collateral damage. Nobody else was going to get hurt. I was going to do everything to make sure that did not happen. In that clip, you heard Darren testify about his drive. Darren's entire testimony, if you listen to it in its completion, his military training really comes into focus as he describes even doing recon on the house when he gets there. So here's a clip of Darren describing the attack on the stand. Again, take note of his verbiage. And she's coming walking out. I hear him uh, uh, coming. And first into my view as, as they're crossing the property right on the sidewalk is it was Maggie. She's leading the way. Jennifer's holding her leash. Jennifer passes. And then here comes Jamie. Did you act immediately? Yes, I do. Did you act immediately because you felt it was necessary? I, I knew it was necessary. I mean, I, I was... Did you believe that you have to, did you have to act uh, immediately to prevent her threat from being, being hurt? Yes, sir. It, it, there was that moment, as soon as Jamie left the house, 
was the first time I would be able to safely take care of the threat to Jennifer. And so I acted. When you acted, what does that mean? That's when I, I, fired, I fired my gun into Jamie. How many times? It was, uh, well, I fired a total of eight shots, I believe, and seemed like only seven hit. Uh, I missed one. Um, I, you know, I started out in his chest. I saw, uh, you know, from the autopsy report, you see, see the one in his upper right chest. Um, as he was walking, so then you see from the also the autopsy report. Then, so it's, uh, I, that gets hit. Jamie starts to rotate to his right. That's what makes him fall. That's why on the top autopsy report, also you saw the contusions and bruises along his knee, his shin, his uh, right side because he's falling that way. And now, so, did you realize this when you were doing it, or was it only? It, I mean, you're speaking of these injuries, like you knew those were the actual injuries. Or is it because you've seen the autopsy now? Well, no, sir. I mean, when the visualizing there, I, I saw him. I, I knew I saw. I shot his chest. He started to turn, and then I continued to put in, in his in, in his side. I mean, into his. I was aiming for the center mass, but he was turning. And when you were doing this, was it your belief though that you were shooting someone who was dangerous? Yes, he was going to. If I didn't act, Jennifer was going to die that day. He was going to be drowned. And that was your, your belief at that time, in your mind? Yes, sir. Again, based on everything we've heard prior to this? Everything. And so uh, you shoot him. Yes. And then uh, you, he falls. Yes. And do you approach uh, them? Yes. So I, I end up shooting the, the four times. He falls completely down. Being a medic, treating people on the battlefield, the human body can take a lot of damage and still live. I did not want Jamie to suffer, even though in my eyes he was a monster. I did not want him to suffer. So I approached and I fired the rounds into his head. By training, you know, should have only been two. It ended up being three because at that time, then I was transitioning from taking out Jamie to now I'm going to attack Jennifer to give her plausible deniability to anything, to give her her alibi. And so this is the first time that I've seen Jennifer since, what, 1993 in person. I'm getting ready to, the person that I love I had to approach her, knock her down to the ground, and start to duct tape her. And so, I'm, I mean, right then, so... That's the first time you touched her since? 93. And the only time you touched her? Yes, sir. The only time I touched her, threw her to the ground, and I punched her and slapped her. Did she know, did she know you were going to do that? No, sir. I, I didn't tell her anything beforehand, and she was... You hear the screams. I mean, they're blood-curdling screams. They were making me sick as I was doing it. Wow. I always get a little shook listening to testimony like that. All right. So this next clip I'm about to play for you is about how Darren felt after the murder, after he eliminated the threat. How did you feel 
about the fact that you <coughs> killed Jennifer's husband? I felt I, I didn't like, I didn't, I'm not proud to do it. You know, I wasn't like, yay, you know, something great happened. No, I was, I was hurt, but I saved Jennifer and I saved Amber. Now, uh, the fact that you knew you had saved her and saved Amber, did that give you, you know, solace or did that help you when you were sitting in jail? When I was sitting in jail? Yeah. Uh, yes, that's the one, now looking back on, that's the one grace that Jennifer gave me. She never told me everything was fake. When I got arrested, you know, the first day in jail was, was, was horrible. I was just, I mean, I let everybody down and family and, and everything. I started to, you know, get control of myself, but, you know, I was like, okay, I, I can do this okay. Because, you know, at the time I was thinking I was, I was the noble soldier that did my job. I did what I was trained to do. I protected people. I kept them from a monster. So that's what I believed. So this entire time that we're listening to this testimony, we still don't know, or the jury still doesn't know, at least from Darren's perspective, that he is aware that Jennifer is a liar. So this is Darren explaining how he felt when his attorney broke it to him in jail that Jennifer was a liar, liar, pants on fire. Here it is. I was devastated. That took an innocent life. I took Amber's dad from her. A man who was like me. I, my, my two oldest daughters are my stepdaughters, but they're my daughters. I would never ever hurt Amber that way. Take her dad from that. That's what gets me how Jennifer could do that to her daughter. Take her dad away from her. Before closing out his direct examination of his client, Darren's attorney wanted to know how Darren felt now. Sitting here today, knowing what you know. Yes. You know that Jamie was not a monster like you, you did. No. Uh, you, uh, you, you hated the fake Jamie. Yes, I did. I, I, we were talking and you, they asked me that and I said, I, even now it's hard. I haven't been able to process everything. I've been locked up. And, but the real Jamie, what do you feel about the fact that you took his life when he wasn't doing any of the things that Jennifer led you to believe? Jennifer turned me into the monster. I hate it. I destroyed Amber's family. Her dad is dead. Her mom's in prison. There's nothing. She's on her own. I pray for her every day. After this, the prosecution had her chance at Darren. And when she got up there, she laid into him and basically tore him a new one on the stand. She basically forced Darren to admit that it's wild to think that a high-level IT guy like the victim, Jamie Faith, would use email to admit to crimes like rape, gang rape, and even attempted murder. Darren on the stand, however, said he believed every bit of what Jennifer told him. 
But the prosecutor then stopped to ask Darren if he ever wondered why Jennifer, a victim of alleged abuse, would then start exchanging erotic BDSM stories with Darren in a sexual manner just minutes after talking about her abuse. I mean, when the prosecutor took over, it was wild to learn all the slimy details of Jennifer and Darren's online love affair. In the end, the jury had a decision to make. Did Darren act as a cold-blooded murderer or was he acting in defense of another, even if the underlying facts were false? Well, the prosecution argued that Darren, even if he believed every single word that came out of Jennifer's mouth and all those fake emails, he did not act prudently and that he didn't even attempt to verify the information Jennifer was saying. He never attempted to make contact with Jamie or Rob over the phone. Everything was strictly through text and emails. Darren's defense attorneys argued that Darren was a pawn in Jennifer's game. And they pointed out to the jury that from the very first day that Jennifer and Darren reconnected in March of 2020, she picked up on his TBI. She even said in the message that she had treated people with TBIs and even joked about a guy she knew who had a TBI and needed loads of therapy. Jennifer, the defense argued, created a fake world, created a monster of her husband, and then created a killer out of a veteran who only wanted to protect her. On July 28, 2023, the jury took but 75 minutes to deliberate before reaching a verdict. When they returned into the courtroom, they found Darren Lopez unanimously guilty of murder. That same day, Darren was sentenced to 62 years in prison. I'm not quite sure how I feel about Darren, you know, in this story. It's sad to say the least that he didn't do his homework on Jennifer. At trial, a man that Jennifer dated back in high school before she dated Darren, he testified that Jennifer had been lying about being abused since high school. When a forensic psychologist testified for Darren at trial, he said something that really stuck with me in this case. On the stand, Dr. Fabian said that Darren latched onto the memory of his high school relationship with Jennifer and that he used it as a coping mechanism to bring fulfillment. Well, where is Darren Lopez now? Well, he's in jail. But he did do an interview with NBC News where he said he would be seeking leniency from the Texas governor. He is requesting a sentence reduction due to his cooperation and due to the fact that the real criminal, according to him, is Jennifer and she's behind bars for life. And he says that his statement to police helped seal her guilty plea. So what do you think? Was justice served? Thank you so much, True Crime Army, for listening in this week. I have had this case on my mind for several months. And in watching a significant portion of the trial, I was baffled at the fact that a completely innocent man who actually took his wife to Vegas the month before his murder was gunned down during an ambush created by the woman he had been with for a decade and a half. If you're interested in more stories like this, join my Patreon family or Apple Premium, where you can get access to close to 40 new full-length bonus episodes immediately. This episode was researched in part by Haley Gray. My sources for this episode included Darren Lopez's trial available on Court TV, a probable cause affidavit, Jennifer's criminal complaint, her stipulation of facts and her plea agreement, and articles found in NBC News, CBS News, and the Department of Justice website. Military Murder is a Mama Margot production. The theme music was created by Tyops. 
Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. Mama's working on her podcast.